Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My colleague Robert Trimsley has written a column for the FT Weekend magazine for years. They're often satirical and sort of making fun of his own first world problems. And he wrote one recently that made me think of this letter that I'd written myself back when I was 19. It was meant to predict the course of my career. And it kind of did. It was really funny to read, actually. I sounded exactly the same. And I was borderline prophetic. I said I'd try to leave journalism and then come back, live in another country, maybe write features one day for a place that seemed impossible to work at the time. The letter reminded me that we may grow and evolve and learn, but fundamentally, we kind of just are who we are. That was the gist of Robert's column, too. He wrote it giving advice to his older self. Someone once said to me, like, we don't change that much, we just understand ourselves better. How does that change the way you think about your advice to your older self? I don't I mean, I, it's, a, it's a really key point because there are lots of things that I could advise my older self to do. Like, for example, go to the Glastonbury Music Festival, which I've never done because <laughs> yeah. I know I'll hate it. And I've, <laughs> I've never done it because I know that even if the ghost of John Lennon appeared on stage, all that I would ever be able to focus on is the fact that it was muddy and it was, you know, it was going to take me three, three quarters of an hour to get to the toilet. Um, right, right. And, and that's who I am. I've known Robert for a long time. And when he's writing this column, he likes to walk around the newsroom and find whoever's in his line of vision and just wrestle through that idea with him. It's like ping pong. It's fun. What about you, Lila? What advice would you give? What, what would you give to the older you? Oh, God. Always go cheer at a marathon, even if you're tired that day or you're going to regret it. Always what? Always like, what? If there's a marathon on, like the London City Marathon yeah. or the New York City Marathon or the Boston City and you're like just hanging out at home, Go. <laughs> Why? That's a ridiculous because idea. Because it's the best day. Because it's the best day in the city. I mean, like, everybody's excited. They're cheering each other on. It gives you energy. And uh, I've missed some, and I've really regretted it. Okay. So I would say do that. That's not... You would be bothered <laughs> I, by I, 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 the crowds if, if and how to get to the bathroom. When the London Marathon is on, I will absolutely avoid anywhere <laughs> um, that, that the route touches. That, that's terrible advice to your future self. Don't, don't, don't do that. Take it, <laughs> take it from me. This week, Robert joins me to think about advice that we would give our future selves. And the exercise actually helps us understand our current selves, too, and think about what it means to live well. Then, our drinks columnist, Alice Lascelles, comes on to talk about non-alcoholic drinks. As people optimize their health more and drink less, this is a category that has surged in popularity. Alice actually thinks that it's becoming the most interesting drinks category of all. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Robert, hi, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Lila, it's good to be here. Such a pleasure to have you. Um, so you recently wrote about advice that you would give not to your younger self, but to your older self. 
And I would love to chat through this as a thought experiment because our team really liked it. We all started thinking, no, well, okay, what you. advice will we give to our older selves? And yeah, well, why do we keep thinking about our younger selves? And what is that about? Well, I mean, it, it started as a it started as a joke in my head, a pastiche, because <laughs> I'd read three or four columns in recent in quite close order, about mm-hmm. advice I would give to my younger self, including one by somebody who really was still quite young, and right. certainly by my standards. And I just thought, there's something ridiculous about this, so I'm going to mock this. And, ha- mm-hmm. and then I thought, okay, how do I mock it? I could give advice to my younger self that's mocking, but there's, it would very quickly get worthy and serious. I didn't want to do that. <laughs> and then it occurred to me, okay, the only option left is to write advice to myself in 20 years' time. What can I see about older me that might be rubbish. Yeah. That I might want to that I might want to warn myself of now. So Robert, before we go on, on to the advice that you would give to your older self, I'm curious what listeners should know about you based on what you talk about in the column. We know you're married, you've mentioned your wife in the piece, you have kids, you write about a lot. The boy and the girl, is that right? I call them the spawn, yeah. Um they're, they're, <laughs> they're both I mean they're neither of them are kids anymore. My son is uh is 20 well, see, 20, 23, and mm-hmm. my daughter is 20, so they're not actually kids anymore. And right. so, you know, I, I and I have, a, a as, as you would expect from someone working for the FT, a, a fairly comfortable existence. And I write about, you know, middle-class obsessions, first-world problems. You know, mm-hmm. you know, I would often get people saying, you know, this is a first-world problem. You say, well, that's my postcode. I live in the first world. <laughs> right. Um, so, Robert, let's do this thought experiment. What kind of advice would you give your older self? What did you kind of fall fall to? What, what are the things? Well, there were the sort of the serious ones and the unserious ones. I was pathetically conservative about drugs. I never really got into drugs at all. My, you know, my, my drug taking mm-hmm. culture barely got beyond aspirin. And mm-hmm. um, <laughs> an element of me thinks, well, when I'm sort of 70, yeah, why maybe not? I'll dip in. I, mean, I don't think I'll go too far. I don't like needles. Right. But, you know, um, <laughs> but, 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 but maybe at 70, when there's really nothing less to lose, you know, it really doesn't matter if you blow your brain cells. Um, sure. Actually, may, maybe I can sit down and try all those things I never quite had the guts to, or desire to try. Robert has a bunch of little things like that that may never happen, like try drugs or learn to paint or places to visit, like go back to that cafe in San Francisco or spend a spring in Italy. But there was one overarching theme. I mean, the big serious one is that you have to battle to stay interesting. What happens is as you get older and you, particularly if you retreat from work or full-time work, is that your your horizon narrows. Yeah. You know, your scope for stories, the things you want to talk about, the issues in life, the space for conversation narrows. So you have to fight to stay interesting. You have to, it's, mm-hmm. it's something you have to work out. It's so easy to just, you know, retreat into your community, your your current circle of friends and family, you know, your, your narrow world. And I think the, mm-hmm. the really big thing is never to do that it, until you are physically incapable of doing otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good one. The, the piece of advice I was still giving, my, I would still give myself, which if I was giving one piece of advice to my younger self, it was to learn to shut up more. <laughs> one of my absolute chronic failings is an inability mm-hmm. to stay quiet uh, <laughs> in meetings, at work, in social gatherings. And I mean, I'm um, sorry if I laughed too loud. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, it's true. There's no way around this one. And uh, yeah. the best I can do is tone it down occasionally. And even that <laughs> won't last for long. I mean, you know, some of the advice that I was thinking I would give to older me is also kind of advice that I would give to my own parents who are like a proxy for future me in a weird way. Like, um, 
you know, if you're struggling to exercise, but you know it'll make you live longer, just get a trainer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, spend your hard-earned money. I'm, I'm interested in those people who, um, who, who advise you to have no money left when you die, to, to manage your money in such a way that there's almost nothing left. So you've spent everything because you... People advise that? Pe- I've pe- never heard uh, anyone advise you, know, you Don't that. die with vast savings because that's wasted. Right. You, 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 should, you could have spent that improving your life. I mean, again... Maybe you're thinking about leaving stuff to your children instead, but I, unless you can be very precise about the time of your death, that's a difficult one to execute. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's interesting, Robert. It's like this thought experiment of of us thinking about our future selves and what we'll want or what we should know and all of that really just leads us back to us thinking about different generations and what they know better or worse than us even now. I do think there are very few. There is wisdom that is translatable yeah. and which crosses the generations. Yeah. And there is wisdom. So, for example, you know, if I was giving advice to my children or to my younger self about, say, relationships, I can think of lots of advice that would be completely useless. But one piece of advice I can think which is useful <laughs> is to say, you know, the key test of a relationship is how much you like yourself when you're with the person you're with. Yeah. And I think that will always be true. If, right. if they make you feel good about yourself or you feel good about yourself when you're with them, then they could be a good fit. And if they don't, mm-hmm. then the odds are they, they're not. That that's right. a piece of wisdom that I think transcends all of the other all of the changes in our world. Technology exactly. and yeah. But a lot of the things thing. that I would offer as wisdom to my children, they'll look at me as if I'm quite bonkers. <laughs> um, Robert, my last question is just like in writing this and in thinking about this, like, do you have any thoughts about or advice about just like good ways to think about the future? Like wait, like humane <laughs> ways uh, to think about future us. You know, I I, th- I think you sometimes have to recognize the aspects of yourself that are that are your core you. Um, right. And I think we are we have a natural self by dint of our genetics, our upbringing, whatever. There there is a core us, mm-hmm. and I think you have to recognize your core you, and either learn to appreciate it or if there's serious problems with it, address them. But I think, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't want to be getting to the middle or second half of your life and still not liking your core you if you can possibly avoid it. Not everyone has that fortune of being able to do so. But I think recognizing your your essentials and, you know, and, and, and accepting them is, I think, quite an important thing. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, give yourself a break is not a terrible piece of advice. Yeah, I think so too. Um, Robert, it's been a total delight. Thank you so much for being on the show. Pleasure, Lila. I've put links to some of my favorite of Robert's columns in the show notes. Over the past 10 years, you may have noticed that there's been a gold rush on non-alcoholic drinks. They've gotten so buzzy that there's now an award ceremony for them in London. My colleague was telling me about it. Her name is Alice Lascelles. She's our drinks columnist, which is an amazing job. You recently were a judge at the World Alcohol Free Awards, which mm-hmm. is a real thing. Mm-hmm. And you published a piece about your experience that we really loved. And can you just like... What is it? What is it like? <laughs> you know, can you set the scene? Like, was did it feel weird and 
new or did it feel like kind of established and impressive? What was it? Yeah. What well, was it I like? mean, the fact that it, they were taking place at all is a watershed moment, I think, in the evolution totally. of the non-alc category. So we were in a room, you know, in a in a restaurant near Tower Bridge, a real mixture of people tasting. So there was a real mix of perspectives. And the, the atmosphere was really buoyant. I mean, there's some joke <laughs> in there about organizing a piss up at a non-alc competition, <laughs> but I'm not quite sure what the joke is. Uh, but the atmosphere, in spite of the lack of alcohol, was very buoyant. So I think everyone was just really excited to be part of that moment and to meet each other as well. Alice joins me today to tell us what's going on in this new frontier. This is a drinking trend that goes by many names. It goes by non-alc, NA, no ABV, or no alcohol by volume. But it all describes a broad category that's as old as time. Things you drink that don't get you drunk. Can you kind of just break this down for me as we get into what really worked and what didn't? Like, as I understand it, Mm. It seems like there's a couple things going on. There's like producers who are making non-alcoholic versions of spirits or alcoholic things, like taking the alcohol out of wine and beer. Mm -hmm. And then there are cocktails and spirits that just naturally don't have alcohol in them. Yes. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Well, sort of classifying the drinks was actually a a real um, challenge for the organizers of this competition. Because, I mean, first of all, how do you classify what fits? in this category? Do you put Coca-Cola in it? Do you put orange totally. juice or milk? Or, right. you know, what, what are the characteristics of a sort of adult non-alcoholic drink? Um, Interesting. Can you give non-alcoholic wine to a child or drink it for breakfast? Or, you know, there's <laughs> all of these sort of new questions it raises. Wow. So they did, they did have to, you know, take a view on some things like, is this a sophisticated drink or is this trying to emulate the kind of complexity or sort of flavor shape of wine or beer or you know the experience does it pair with food that kind of thing mm-hmm. and they had to ask themselves as well as simply looking at the abv of the products there are different categories you have your sort of proxy drinks so your kind of non-alcoholic wines and in inverted commas or spirits or beers mm-hmm. but beer is one big exception here because beer has a long and storied history of sort of certainly low alcohol brewing. And what did you find? I mean, what was the kind of consensus about what makes something alcoholic? Like, what did you find was satisfying to your palate in a way that... Yeah, what what scratches the itch? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, obviously, you're not going to get any kind of high from these products. So they've really got to over-deliver on, on flavor in a way. Mm-hmm. So... So I suppose what we were looking for was, does it give you that kind of sophisticated, well-rounded kind of drinking experience that you get from an alcoholic drink? But no hangover. (laughs) But no hangover, yeah. Alice also tried a few of these new kind of holistic, homeopathic, woo-woo drinks. They're called nootropic. It's an entirely unregulated space, but they claim to give you energy and a brain boost and some euphoria. Did you feel like you went anywhere or not really? Well, this was a difficult environment to assess uh, the (laughs) hike as we were tasting, you know, flights for kind of six at a time within the space of half an hour. So even if I did feel high, it would be hard to know which one was actually working. But I've tasted (laughs) a lot of these products in the past at home uh, and got my husband to monitor my progress during the (laughs) evening as well to tell me if I was behaving differently. And in most cases, they've had little to no effect on me, I'm afraid. But Mm -hmm. then again, 
you know, I've been drinking martinis professionally for 20 years, so I probably have the constitution <laughs> of a rhino. So it would probably take a lot to have an effect. So Alice, let's talk about the rise in, in non-alcoholic drinks. I have a lot of friends that have started drinking less. I have noticed mocktails on all sorts of restaurant menus, even ones where I wouldn't expect them. And I guess my I'm, what I'm most curious about is like, when and how did this happen? I feel like I blinked and it had happened, but <laughs> is there like a timeline of how non-alcoholic drinks and low ABV drinks got popular? Mm. Well, I, I feel like I started to notice something happening about 10 years ago. This was at the height of sort of craft cocktails really taking off. And um, some of the more forward thinking bartenders, I think, were looking for new kind of envelopes to push. Mm-hmm. And non-alc, you know, didn't really exist as a category in cocktails at all then, apart from a few sort of sickly mocktails. And um, <laughs> so you got bartenders starting to do really interesting things with flavor and really, I suppose, approaching it as a, the ultimate challenge. Can you create a cocktail that tastes great, that doesn't have any alcohol in it? So I mm-hmm. think they were the real, the bartenders were the real trailblazers and starting to create a more sophisticated kind of market for non-alc. Alice, I'm curious why you think um, non-alcoholic drinks are extra popular now. Like, do you feel like, it seems like we're turning away from something and we're turning towards something. And um, I'm trying to pinpoint what that is. I'm curious Mm. what you think. If we keep it focused to sort of Western Europe and the US, because different markets behave differently, obviously. But um, I think the first reason is we understand much better now about the impact of alcohol on your health. And I think that's one of the reasons people are drinking less, Um, Mm -hmm. particularly looking at the data, uh, mental health. Anecdotally, there's also social media has a role to play. Apparently, people are more anxious about having their life on show. However, I think actually the the most interesting area is where you see non-alc and alc kind of coexisting. Yeah. So recently in London, Lucky Saint, which is a a really big non-alc lager here in the UK, uh, they recently opened a pub and they sell booze as well as non-alcoholic drinks. And the whole point is about creating the most inclusive space possible that caters to people who do drink and don't drink, but also people who just want to mix it up a bit yeah. and maybe moderate their drinking. And I and I think that's the real change now is it's, you know, it's not an either or choice necessarily. Um, right. It's just more choice for everyone, really. Yeah. And I imagine, like, that's where the most interesting stuff happens is when bartenders who are so knowledgeable in, like, every level of the drink that they're making are also putting that knowledge to drinks without alcohol. Definitely. If there's a, if there's a downside to the, the non-alc market at the moment is a lot of them still taste pretty rank. And I think that's because <laughs> you have people who are either, I don't know, cynically capitalizing on this gold rush or are doing it from coming at it from a well-meaning but inexperienced point of view. So you're getting products that are a nice idea, but there's no expertise when it comes to flavor creation at all in their production. (laughs) So (laughs) that was something we definitely had to deal with, uh, confront in some areas of um, the awards that we were judging the other day. Alice, thank you so much. This is so much fun. Brilliant. Thanks.
That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the life and arts podcast of the Financial Times. Next week, we are talking to the novelist Curtis Sittenfeld about romantic comedies, why we still love them, and what about them might need to change. Links to everything mentioned today are in the show notes, alongside a link to a wonderful discount on an FT subscription that is also at ft.com slash weekend podcast. As you know, we love hearing from you. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. The show is on Twitter at ftweekendpod. And I am on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. I post a lot of behind the scenes stuff about the show on my Instagram. If you like the show, we would love if you shared it. Tell a friend that you think would like it. Post about us if there's an episode you particularly loved. Or a true gift, uh, go to Apple and write us a review. That really helps the show. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and here is my exceptional team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our producer. Molly Nugent is our contributing producer and the MVP of this episode. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko with original music by Metaphor Music. Topher Forges is our executive producer, and our global head of audio is Cheryl Brumley. Have a wonderful weekend, and we'll find each other again next week. <laughs>